welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. Beware the end of March. And look out in your news feeds for a new special episode coming out soon. In some other immigration news this week amongst the many, the Ninth Circuit is going in bonk in De La Rosa Rodriguez v. Garland, episode 127. Now I don't know why they're going to go in bonk, but I do know what the case was about. It was mainly about Patel. It was a decent post-Patel holding, to the extent that those can exist, holding that quote, although the BIA's ultimate decision to grant cancellation of removal is discretionary, the statute grants us jurisdiction to review a question of law or mixed question of law in fact presented in a petition for review of an agency decision denying cancellation based on the absence of exceptional and extremely unusual hardship to family members, end quote. That's what the panel decision had held. But other circuits have held otherwise recently, and I fear that the Ninth Circuit might be about to agree. But who knows? Only the Enbank Court can tell. See you in a few months on that. Two cases to discuss this week in just a minute. Before getting to the cases, I want to talk about journey business plans. Journey is the leading business immigration plan writing company in the United States. Ten years. And they know immigration. Heck, they started as an E2 company themselves. Journey prides itself on its responsiveness and overall customer service, preparing business plans for E2, EB2 NIW, L1, EB5, and much more. If you don't yet know about Journey, and don't want to listen to just me, ask your colleagues. Or even better, try them out. Visit www.journey.com and use promo code REVJOURNEY30 for a 30% discount on your first business plan. That's R-E-V-J-O-O-R-N-E-Y-3-0. Or click on the link in the show notes. Our first case is Matter of Garcia, published by the BIA. 
This case is about the law that governs removal proceedings. And look, BIA, I've got no problem with the decision. In fact, I needed some decisions this week. And despite its relative dullness, this is a very important issue. But BIA, if you're going to give me 15 pages single-spaced, can you please do it on a Tuesday rather than a Friday afternoon? Avoid Mondays if you can, too. Have some consideration, BIA. Please have some consideration. Mr. Garcia is from El Salvador and has lived in the United States without authorization since the year 2000. He was placed in removal proceedings in 2018 and pursued non-LPR cancellation of removal under INA Section 240A-B. Proceedings were initiated in the Philadelphia Immigration Court, which is a non-detained court in the Third Circuit Court of Appeals. But then DHS, on its own, decided to detain Mr. Garcia. Having detained him, DHS sought to transfer Mr. Garcia's case to the detained immigration court in York, Pennsylvania. The immigration judge granted the motion. Still within the Third Circuit, though much more difficult for non-citizens to litigate a case from immigration detention. Multiple hearings occurred at these two courts. At the final hearing, however, with Mr. Garcia sitting in a York detention center in front of a TV screen, the IJ appeared virtually and made it known that she was actually physically sitting in Falls Church, Virginia, within the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals. The IJ was sitting in what's called a, quote, immigration adjudication center, end quote, which appears to have come to life during the last administration, and to be honest, I'm not quite sure what they look like. Non-citizens certainly don't appear there. It seems like they're designed to permit IJs to conduct hearings all over the country via televideo, and sometimes to even decide cases where the IJ wasn't the sitting IJ at the individual hearing. They're kind of weird. But they now exist, and apparently there are three of them. And there's one in Falls Church, Virginia. The immigration judge denied relief by applying Third Circuit case law, because Mr. Garcia was physically in the Third Circuit and he had submitted all his submissions in the Third Circuit, and from EOIR's standpoint, it was the York Detention Center in the Third Circuit that had jurisdiction, notwithstanding the IJ physically sitting in the Fourth Circuit. So what law applies? The Third Circuits or the Fourth Circuits? It's an important question. And before I tell you what the BIA said, you should know if you're a loyal accredited podcast superfan that the circuits are kind of all over the place on the issue, which is a big problem for orderly adjudication of cases. It's a bit muddied by the fact that also sometimes the circuits are actually deciding where a petition for review should be filed, rather than necessarily what choice of law applies. But in any event, as the BIA explains in a footnote, the Seventh Circuit has said that venue and law lie with the governing immigration court, not with where the witnesses are doesn't seem to necessarily answer the question before the BIA right now. The Ninth Circuit has applied a multi-factor analysis just last year in Sosita v. Garland that may not have a bright-line rule. The Eighth Circuit in Adunga Facts said last year that the venue and law lie where the case is docketed, even if the non-citizen appears somewhere else. The Tenth Circuit appears to have said similarly. The Third and the Fourth Circuit have said opposite things. More on that in a minute while the Second Circuit has held that venue and law likely lie where the court case was docketed, assuming that no change of venue has occurred. What a mess. Again, it's an important issue because, barring Chevron or Brand X deference issues of administrative law, the BIA and IJs are, quote, 
bound to follow the law of the Circuit Court of Appeals with jurisdiction over the region where an immigration court is located, end quote. So we've got to know what circuit law to apply. It also implicates, as I kind of mentioned, where a non-citizen should file a petition for review of a BIA decision. And even after this decision here, that question, where to file a petition for review, is, quote, solely subject to the court's purview, end quote, that is, the circuits. Meaning that if the circuits disagree with this decision by the BIA right here, things can still get messy for petition for review purposes. In fact, 10 circuits have unanimously concluded, according to the BIA, that there may not be a bright-line rule for petition for review purposes, and that, quote, they have the discretion to consider petitions for review arising from this BIA, even where venue lies elsewhere, end quote. Restated, circuits are going to do circuit things. Let's get back to the narrow issue here. What law to apply, the Third Circuits or the Fourth Circuits? Very recently, in a footnote in matter of RCR and some other decisions, the BIA held that the circuit law to apply is the law governing the docketing location of the hearing, not where the immigration judge is physically sitting. But that's just a footnote. Just before that footnote, the Third Circuit said that venue and law is tied to where proceedings are docketed, similar thing, rather than where the IJ is physically sitting. But very recently, in Herrera Alcala v. Garland, the Fourth Circuit said the exact opposite, holding that, quote, venue was proper in its circuit, where the respondent appeared from a facility in Louisiana, and the immigration judge appeared via video conferencing from an immigration adjudication center in Virginia, end quote. Certainly the same immigration adjudication center at issue in this decision. So that's quite the pickle for a case touching both the Third Circuit and the Fourth Circuit. Drumroll, please. The BIA reaffirmed that the law is the law where the case was docketed, and now where administrative control of the case lies, not where the immigration judge physically sits, siding essentially with the Third Circuit and not the Fourth. The BIA reached this conclusion by interpreting its own regulations in a manner similar to how the Second Circuit has also interpreted those regulations recently. Specifically, 8 CFR section 1003.20 and .14, and a few other regulations. Of course, don't take my summary for it. Quote, The controlling circuit law in immigration court proceedings for choice of law purposes is the law governing the geographic location of the immigration court where venue lies, namely, where jurisdiction vests and proceedings commence upon the filing of a charging document, and will only change if an immigration judge subsequently grants a change of venue to another immigration court, end quote. What if the initial NTA was deficient? Not going there. And listen up, DHS. Even when a non-citizen is detained or released from detention, the mere, quote, filing of a Form I-830 in itself is not sufficient to effect a change of venue request. DHS must file a motion to change venue before the immigration judge, end quote. Also, in what appears to be a requirement from the BIA, the quote, analysis and identification of the applicable circuit law should be included in an immigration judge's final decision, end quote. Turning then to the non-LPR cancellation of removal case at issue, remember Mr. Garcia? Well, this holding means that the IJ applied the correct law when the IJ applied Third Circuit law. Not 100% sure what the difference is for non-LPR cancellation, But there's definitely differences in other areas of immigration law, like, say, particularity, for particular social groups. 
Mr. Garcia argued that his removal would cause extreme and exceptionally unusual hardship to his 16-year-old U.S. citizen's son. But to the BIA, quote, hardship is not measured in a vacuum, but must necessarily be assessed, at least in part, by comparing it to the hardship others might face, end quote. Seems like a reviewable standard to me. Dare I say grounds for an arbitrary and capricious challenge before the Circuit Court of Appeals by pointing to other prior BIA decisions where hardship was found, if the BIA denies hardship in your case? Anyway, with Mr. Garcia, the IJ found that the son will live in the United States with the son's mother who has TPS if Mr. Garcia is removed. Seems like most of the hardships alleged were emotional and financial, And to the BIA, even if the father's removal may impact the son's ability to attend college, this hardship is, quote, insufficient, end quote. No mention of why DHS decided to detain Mr. Garcia, by the way. Mr. Garcia therefore lost his case. My thoughts. Relying on the regulations to make a pretty expansive holding, huh? Sounds like the decision will warrant the lesser our deference by the circuits to me. Circuits can disagree. So I'm unsure whether this decision is even good law in the Fourth Circuit, as the BIA can't, to my knowledge, apply the Supreme Court's Brand X decision to trump a circuit's interpretation of the regulations, even if those regulations are ambiguous. I'm a bit unsure. In any event, I didn't see the BIA citing to Brand X or any other principle of administrative law in this decision. So heck, I'm not sure whether, if this decision were petitioned for review to the Fourth Circuit where the IJ was sitting, if this very decision would hold up in the Fourth Circuit. Have I missed something? It's happened before. Also, and certainly not accusing DHS and EOIR of doing it, but this decision does permit some perverse incentives. DHS can build a whole bunch of immigration detention centers in areas of the country where land is cheaper, thereby allowing construction of more detention centers, and within circuits that just happen to have less favorable law for non-citizens, generally. DHS can then file the notice to appear with that detained court, but permit those cases to be decided by judges sitting in an adjudication center located far away in an area that might be more desirable for immigration judges to live such as Falls Church. Should a future administration decide to engage in such venue shopping, one could argue that it's not very equitable. And it sure makes expanding immigration detention in the United States that much easier. And that is Matter of Garcia. In this month of not-so-many-published decisions... We have reached a bit to find our final case, United States v. Alas, published on the Fourth Circuit on March 24th, 2023. This is an interesting case about a lot of things arising in the context of criminal illegal reentry prosecution. Mr. Alas is from El Salvador. He was physically removed in 2011 following a conviction for malicious wounding in Virginia in violation of Virginia Code section 18.2-51. He re-entered the U.S. unlawfully afterwards. Then in 2020, he was arrested for assault and battery. That led the U.S. government to prosecute him for illegal re-entry under 8 U.S.C. section 1326. Mr. Lass brought various challenges to his criminal proceedings. The district court and then the Fourth Circuit rejected them. 
but they're interesting. See, in 2011, Mr. Lass was expeditiously removed. He didn't go before an immigration judge. ICE just removed him, concluding on its own that his malicious wounding conviction was an aggravated felony crime of violence. And immigration law allows this. Kind of crazy. Mr. Alas then waived his right to judicial review, and he was physically removed. But he re-entered shortly after that. Here's where the first wrinkle appears. In April 2016, he was assaulted by his employer in the United States, and he was visited in the hospital by a Harris County Sheriff deputy about the attack. Mr. Lass told the deputy that he hadn't reported the attack because he was in the United States illegally, and the deputy assured him that he wouldn't report Mr. Lass to immigration officials. And the deputy didn't. Fast forward to 2020, assault and battery arrest, and then a May 2021 criminal prosecution for illegal reentry. But here's the thing. Like other non-capital offenses, an illegal re-entry charge under Section 1326, quote, must be handed down within five years after such offense shall have been committed, end quote. In the illegal re-entry context, the offense is deemed complete and committed when the person is, quote, found in, end quote, the U.S. illegally. Mr. Lass argued that he was found in April 2016 by that deputy, but that nothing had happened and that just over five years later, he was indicted in May 2021. Therefore, so Mr. Alas argues, the five-year statute of limitations has run on his indictment. Quite the argument. I believe the former president is making a similar argument as we speak in New York. The Fourth Circuit rejected it here. Generally, as a matter of law, it is only federal government officials that can find a non-citizen for purposes of the illegal reentry statute. After all, immigration is governed by federal law, so state deputies don't generally cut it. However, ever since the Obama administration, I believe, ICE has reached what we call Section 287G agreements with local police forces, permitting state police officers to, quote, perform the functions of an immigration officer, end quote. Some local sheriffs believe that these agreements are unconstitutional and so have refused to enter into them or to enforce them. That's one way of getting the sanctuary city designation that news sources throw around a bit ambiguously. Anyway, in 2016, Harris County indeed had a 287G agreement with the feds. How about that? And a non-citizen, quote, found by a state officer designated and trained under Section 287G to enforce federal immigration law would be found in the United States, end quote. Mr. Lass's statute of limitation argument definitely has legs, right? The deputy spoke to him in April 2016, and that deputy's office had a 287G agreement, and so didn't that start the five-year statute of limitations? No. And I promised I wouldn't do it, but how can I not? Alas, the Fourth Circuit determined that for an officer to qualify, that specific officer must be, quote, personally designated under Section 287G, end quote. It's not sufficient that the officer's office had a 287G agreement. The only way that an officer in a 287G police department can effectuate an immigration arrest, it appears, is if that officer is nominated and then, quote, once individuals are nominated, ICE will provide participating personnel with immigration authority delegation program training, end quote. 
and then, quote, upon successful completion of training, these personnel shall be deemed certified, end quote. So that's quite the procedure. On the flip side, doesn't that mean that non-citizens can challenge the lawfulness of their arrest in immigration court by state police officers? Because the fact that an office, like, say, the Miami Police Department, has a 287G agreement doesn't mean that the specific officer does, and doesn't allow that specific officer to effectuate an immigration arrest. Right? Seems right. But it has the opposite result for Mr. Alas. He wasn't found by that deputy in 2016. The officer who he encountered at the time didn't have the training and wasn't specifically designated as a 287G officer. So the statute of limitations didn't begin to run. So he can be prosecuted now. Thanks for the helpful argument, though, Federal Public Defenders of Richmond, Virginia. Because to be clear, quote, employees lacking this certification remain typical state employees, unable to enforce federal immigration law, end quote. Fourth Amendment violation-based motions to terminate in immigration court for days, with subpoena requests for the arresting state court officers' training certificates, of course. Because, quote, federal law and regulations require written certification that officers have received adequate training to carry out the duties of an immigration officer, end quote. Throw in this quote while you're at it, quote, Allowing local law enforcement open-ended authority to arrest individuals for immigration violations would infringe on the substantial discretion Congress entrusted to the Attorney General in making removability decisions, which often require the weighing of complex diplomatic, political, and economic considerations. End quote. All of that, again, while potentially helpful in immigration court, tanks Mr. Lass's argument on statute of limitations. But he had another argument. He attacked his 2011 expedited removal order, saying that it would be fundamentally unfair to use that as a basis to convict him now because his malicious wounding conviction was not, and is not in fact, an aggravated felony crime of violence. The Fourth Circuit said it was. Virginia malicious wounding requires the actual attempted or threatened use of physical force, as the aggravated felony crime of violence definition requires at INA Section 11843F and 18 U.S.C. Section 16A. The court had said so at the time of Mr. Alessa's removal in 2011, and so his removal order was proper. Mr. Alessa's very smart attorneys argued that everything changed with the Supreme Court's decision in Bourdain, episode 59, a few years ago. That case held, to summarize very briefly, that a crime is not a crime of violence if the crime permits conviction with a mental state of recklessness. The argument failed for two reasons here. First, the Fourth Circuit actually addressed the very issue with malicious wounding in Virginia post-Bourdain last year, and held otherwise. Malicious wounding convictions in Virginia cannot be obtained with a mental state of mere recklessness. So that's pretty devastating for the argument. But also, Bourdain, of course, wasn't the law in 2011, which is when the removal happened. As the Supreme Court has stated, quote, postponing justifiable deportation in the hope that the non-citizen's status will change is often the principal object of resistance to a deportation proceeding, end quote. No comment. All of this means that Mr. Alas was properly convicted for illegal reentry. I shall conclude the week with a quote completely out of context from the decision, but still a quote from the decision, quote, There are significant complexities involved in enforcing federal immigration law. Not just anyone, 
can do it. End quote. Harumph. And that is USVLS. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review, or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official immigration review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook, at Immigration Review. And send us a tweet, at ImReview. That's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review. Thank you.